Shalom. Welcome to Seekers of Meaning, the podcast TV arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. I am your host, Rabbi Richard Address, and it is uh, our goal in these podcasts to explore some of the issues that we walk through in our generation as part of the revolution in longevity that is affecting all of our families, our communities, our congregations, etc. And we welcome your feedback. You can email me at rabbiaddress at jewishsacredaging.com and we do look forward to hearing from you. And once again, we are very pleased and thankful uh, to welcome as our sponsor for these podcasts, the Rothkopf Elder Law Firm, which provides a full range of assistance to individuals and families in the area of elder law. And you can reach them at rothkopflaw.com or their 877 number, 877-475-1101. One of the challenges of living is dealing with unexpected loss, of dealing with things that perhaps in our wildest dreams we may never have even thought about. And so we welcome, with many thanks, uh, Henry and Marcia Bloomberg. Uh, Henry is the primary author of Sean left quietly sean left quietly subtitled a father's memoir um and we welcome henry and marcia from toronto we welcome you to secrets of meaning to talk about your son uh and his taking of his own life uh sadly this story is not unique and um we know every colleague who will listen to this or watch this has dealt with this in their own congregation. Uh, and there's so many nuances. But first of all, thank you very much for joining us and taking the time to discuss this. Um, let me just ask both of you, mom and dad, who is Sean? Who is Sean? Sean um, was our son, uh, and uh, he took his own life. And uh, the time he was with us was extremely meaningful. He was a very uh, bright guy. He was a member of Mensa. Uh, he had a degree in psychology. And um, eventually, when he uh, found that he could not overcome his depression and paranoia and pain, uh, that is when he took his own life. But uh, he was a very kind, very considerate, um, and empathetic person. So, Go ahead, Marcia. No, I was going to say, he was our youngest son, our fourth son. He took his life at the age of 35 after having struggled for 15 years with um, depression and paranoia. And he really tried everything, every group, many different psychiatrists. We tried whatever we could. And in the book that Henry wrote, The Trip to South Africa, we hoped would bring back very good memories. And it was a very good trip. He loved the trip. So of his childhood and of, of his birthplace. But that Henry's put, he was kind, he was gentle. And on his tombstone, the, at the, the back of the tombstone is a title of the play. The, the playwright is Yael Farber from South Africa. And she mm -hmm. said, not only am I giving you permission to use it, but I'm very honored that you've asked me. So on the back of his tombstone is he left quietly. 
which is the title of her play. And right. here we've used Sean in we did. Sean lived quietly. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful title. It, it it really is a beautiful title. The the person who wrote the forward here um writes this line that's a very, very interesting quote. Um this is um you wrote this, which offers a way not only to live with loss, but also to transform it into a part of oneself. Not only to live with loss, but to transform it into a part of oneself. What does that mean? Because it's it's very powerful. How, how do you turn a loss like this, quote, into a part of oneself? Well, on the one hand, the living with the loss <clears throat> was the fact that he took his own life. And when he's faced with the loss, transforming it into a part of oneself, as it were, was my way of dealing with uh, the loss. And what I found was that some people can get solace by talking to others, uh, by therapy, going to a counselor. I found I could not do that. I found that while I could speak to Marcia at all times, I found that talking to other people didn't give me the consolation. And so I had to delve, I delved into the experience, I delved into the memories of uh, our life together, what we did as a family, his involvement in the family, and in that way that transformed um, itself. Um, into my own, in, into my own experience. And while writing the book, it was a process that took about 10 years. It was really? uh, <clears throat> as if uh, by delving and getting meaning uh, from uh, our togetherness, it, it gave me a perspective uh, of my own life. It, it became, as it were, part of me. And, um, it's very difficult, as it were now, to dissociate myself from the happening um, because so many memories come back of of what actually happened as, as it's reflected in the in the book. Now, whether it is the travels to South Africa or the travel to London or uh, canoe trips or whatever it may be, that is now part of my experience, which would not have been part of my experience had unfortunately the tragedy not taken place. In writing the book, um, and as you as you wrote the book over the course, as you said, ten years, and if in talking about it, the two of you, Sean is still alive. In that, M Marcia, you're shaking your head. Yes, is is talk Absolutely. to me about it. and that's part of what we do on a regular basis. We speak about him. We speak about him to his favorites in the whole world, which were his nieces and nephews. Right, um, we tell stories about him. Some of them knew him. Some of them were much too young to know him. But we celebrate his birthday every year and remember wow. him with the same birthday cake he loved, which is an ice cream cake with balloons, colored balloons on it. And what he always laughed about and spoke about was how each niece and and a nephew would say, oh, I want the red one. I want the blue one. They had to sort of negotiate to get the, and we still get the same cake. We still talk about it and how Sean 
loved them. So we keep on talking about him. He is absolutely part of our family. And of course, for me, it's particularly hard, like on Mother's Day, when I have all the others there and he's not right. there. But we lost a grandchild before we lost Sean. So this wow. is the second loss, a two-year-old um, in, in the early 2000s. So, um, and that was a medical reason. She was born without part of her. Maybe if I could also add here, um, each one in their own way has tried to memorialize and remember him. So, for example, my one son will put uh, on Facebook uh, the date of his, uh, some memory on the date of his death or the date of his birth, Um, and in different ways remember him. And then my other son uh, also uh, remembered him by the creation of what he called the Sean Bloomberg Transparency Project which Sean had worked on, and uh, it is a free database of all Canadian uh, charities. About 80,000 Canadian charities are listed there, and it gives all their records going back for about 20 years, all the wow. names of the directors, the names of the finances, what they spend, their directors' fees and everything, and that is a, a public service that uh, we've, my, my son, Mark has created uh, as part of what he called the Sean Bloomberg Transparency Project. And in that way, it's also a memorializing of, uh, of what he did. I'm, I found it fascinating. You, you continue to, to bring Sean into now, into the now. Have you, have you talked to, I, I would imagine that in the course of these 10 years since Sean uh, died, that other parents sort of situations have reached out to you or you've been in connection with other, do you find that people, some people don't want to talk about this at all? It's, it's like Shah, it's like a Shonda. You don't want to, but you, you, you find the talking about it therapeutic. Well, we had, a, I had a very strict rule when he was alive. I never spoke about his problems to anybody other than of course, Henry and the brothers knew. If friends had children with depression and could recognize that he was depressed, they would ask me how he was doing, then I would be truthful. But otherwise, I never wanted Sean's illnesses or problems to become a, a, a form of gossip. Right. So we never discussed it. And the minute we heard that he had taken his life, we I immediately said, I want to do the... The speech, uh, the, speech at the at the at the funeral. at his at his funeral. Oh, the eulogy, eulogy. The eulogy. Thank you. And I felt I, I'd had a year off because I was on sabbatical, so I spent a, an enormous amount of time with him, and I felt I really knew him better, perhaps, than anybody else. So, in my state of shock, this is what I said: I want to do the eulogy. And our rabbi then said to me, "How are you going to do it?" I said, well, I'll type it out, I promise. But why I felt so incredibly strongly about it was that this was a time not to be shy or shamed about what had happened and why. So to me, that's been another very important part. As a professor teaching theatre where lots of suicides in the plays, didn't realise how many there would be. I don't ever say it's my son but I, because I don't want to become too personal with any of my life. But I do say, I talk about suicide and the fact that it's not weakness that makes people do this and how terrible it is 
to criticize and judge people. So I try to show that it's not anything to be ashamed about. And and just to take the point further about um, communicating with people and people reaching out to us, what I found was that people that uh, we knew very well um, never shared with us the, the trauma that they went through. But at Shiva, a person that I have known for 20 years said to me, you know, I want to tell you, I have not seen our daughter for 10 years. And then another person that was a client of mine uh, for many years, um, and I knew his son, and he said to me, you know, a short while ago, we got a phone call from our son in Thailand. And our son said, Dad, this is the last time you will hear from me. He said, we knew things could happen at any stage. Fortunately, the next day, the son phoned up and apologized. He said, I feel very much better. And then I found a strange situation the night before the funeral. Uh, a client of mine came to the house um, and he, he'd been a member of the French Foreign Legion. <laughs> so you can imagine he was a strapping, strong guy uh, and uh, he immigrated to Canada and had done very well. And he said, I'm coming tonight to your house. I hope you don't mind, but I cannot come to the funeral. And I, you know, I looked at him and he carried on. He said, when I was 10 years old, my father took his own life. He hanged himself and I found him. And uh, so I found in different ways people have reached out to us. And I think that they feel that they can actually speak to us because they feel that we will understand. Has there been, because there's a little bubble of this now in the United States, has there been in in these last several years, maybe influenced a little bit by the pandemic in Canada, a greater awareness about talking about suicide and the mental health components of what goes in? Or is it still something that we just don't want to talk about? I think that on the whole, yes. And as I say, for me, part of teaching is making people aware, not only in terms of suicide, but in terms of sexual orientation or being trans or anything else, that who are we to be critical? Each person is entitled to be who he or she is. And so I spend whatever, I mean, I always say it's, I'm not on a soapbox, I'm using the play, but any play that gives me the opportunity to talk about not shaming people, I use. But I think also to take your your question further, I think there definitely is a far greater awareness now, especially as a result of COVID and isolation. Um, much more um, is found on the media. The only, the only problem that arises is that uh, the treatment, unfortunately, is very sparse and it's hard to get the treatment. And while there's, there, there's a lot of um, posturing on the part of the local government, um, they will bring out great news releases, another five or 10 or 20 million dollars. But usually it is for a service where a person is about to take his own life. You can phone such and such and somebody will talk to you. A helpline. A helpline. But after the helpline, you're on your own again. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons why I'm very thankful that you agreed to, you know, to, to share your story with us is because you're alluding to the, the more people reduce the stigma 
of talking about this because it's very real and it's multi, it's intergenerational. I mean, the, what young people are living through right now uh, is, is traumatic. And we've seen the statistics, certainly the epidemic of loneliness, um, amongst older adults has its own, uh, residual impact. But there's still so much stigma of talking. It's sometimes in, in, as you may have experienced, it may have be easier to talk about cancer than it is I'm suffering from clinical depression. Sure. Um, so here's, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this. So, you know, I'm from New Jersey. So we, <laughs> who knows? So in the beginning, Henry, you, you, you write about, I too would find my own form of expression, my own voice. I had to rediscover my, Ikigai. Did I pronounce it? What is right. that? Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's meaning to my life. My oh, own okay. sort of meaning. Uh, it, because when um, such a traumatic event takes place, it, it's, it's as if you are stopped in your tracks. And I, I had to sort of think through things, the relationship with Sean, the relationship with the family, and the relationship with my own being. and. In, in that way that I use that Japanese word, ikigai, basically to find meaning uh, to my to my own being, as it were. And so, the, is what process, or, or, or let me just rephrase, is that still ongoing? Is that still ongoing, this search? Well, the, the search um, is ever-present. But... Um, uh, there's also a focus. One has to focus and move on. And uh, my focus on moving on is my second book, uh, which is biographical and a memoir, uh, which is now being edited. Um, it, it's, it's an autobiography, uh, and I've done a draft of the third book, which is basically wow. the book of family and Holocaust. So on the one hand, with what happened with uh, to Sean and what happened to the family, as it were, and relationships from one thing or another, that is always present. That is always present, and that always sort of gets uh, refurbished, uh, reinvigorated. Uh, one cannot leave that. That is part of, of our life, of my life. But on the other hand, uh, I have to move on um, to other uh, projects. And so while the other projects are there, the past sort of comes back. So this is a... This really has opened up a whole new right. avenue for you, right. which is, uh, which is, you know, it's very interesting that Sean lives, will continue to live through your writing, which is a lovely testament. Uh, th there's a lot of, there's not a lot, rabbinic hyperbole. There is some research dealing with individuals who are planning to end their own life that they send uh, sometimes not so subtle or subtle messages by actions or lack thereof. And I think you allude to um, some of this in the book, the filling the car. What could you just, did what, did you sense this at all? Were there any actions that sort of like triggered something in you saying, wait a minute, something's going on? Well, the, the one uh, that really, uh, had a dramatic effect on me was that one day we were in the house and it was raining 
and uh, our daughter-in-law went downstairs and she said there's a flood in a room uh, downstairs where Sean used to live when he lived with us. Um, and quite a few of his possessions he'd left behind there. And uh, the result was that we had to obviously take out, you know, do some reconstruction, take out the carpet, take out the furniture. But the, the books and his artwork was all preserved. And that is the wow. only flood. That is the only flood we've had in the house. And we've lived there uh, for probably, what, over 30 years. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a message as if to say, uh, move on, move on, clear my things out, look at my stuff, um, don't keep my room as, as it was. And I, I turned that room then into a small little gym um, with a treadmill and one thing and another. But that, that was quite, uh, that, that was a very, very strong message. And then there was the other that I think Molly would like to speak well, about. I just want, you asked particularly about what signs there were about potential right. suicide. This was his right. third right. attempt. This was oh. his third attempt. And the newest psychologist we went to whom he'd been with for two years, said, I can never promise that he will not do it again. You have to be prepared. You're doing everything you can, he said to us. But he said, I cannot guarantee that he will. he's an intelligent person. He knows. And he, he found the method of doing it in on the internet, printed it all out, took the most gentle possible way, I mean, that is typically who he was. So that was something we knew was likely to happen. And we were I was very nervous always as to when. You know, I, I think what Marcia said, if I may just add, it, it was a sort of, although we hoped it would never happen. Easy. On the other hand, it was a sort of anticipatory grief that you knew that something could happen and in a way you were stealing yourself to the possibility of it happening, hoping it will never happen. Well, yes. I mean, there's a, there's a psychologist, uh, uh, Pauline Boss, who's written on this. She's sort of like the expert on what is called anticipatory grief. Uh, and her last book on, on the myth of closure, which talks a little bit about the pandemic, but really the thesis is what you're talking about, that, that sometimes there's this mythology that people say, well, you know, the year of mourning is over or Shiva is over and you know, it's time to move on. And her thesis is, no, 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 no. There is no such thing as closure. You find, as, you, as you've talked about, you find a way that you take this grief and you, you find it a place in your soul, but it's there. It never goes away. There's no such thing as closure this end is we're, we're 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 done with it if i can add one or two things here first of all for me what helped me because we didn't go to groups or see anybody we spoke to each other and i had an aunt and a cousin in london and one very good friend here whom i spoke to regularly but what was very important to me was that sean had spent time gathering material for me on CDs and whatever that I needed to show because I deal with theatre. I felt a very strong sense of purpose in continuing my teaching because there was all his work, all his things that he did for me, 
and never use them again because I don't want to think about him? No, I had a duty to make his work real and help people. The other thing was that um, I, in a completely different way. So that helped me. That helped me a lot and has helped me to this day. I'm still teaching full time and I'm 77. So that's quite unusual, I think. Good for you. Good no, for you. I'm very I'm grateful. Sure. But the no, one no. thing, there was a turning point for me, if I can call it that, it was never closure. One of the things I said to Henry from very early on after the suicide was, you know, we're a big family. There were four of us. Now, Sean is completely alone. And he used to make jokes about being the, the last child, the youngest child. They're always in the worst position. But he always said it with a smile on his face. He wasn't angry. Well, for years and years and years, I said to him, it worries me. And then we heard through people that there was a medium that they had gone to speak to. And she only speaks to parents of children who've taken their lives or, or died in an accident which is what happened to her, her 20-year-old daughter. And we went to see her for an hour. And I think Henry's last, one of the last chapters in the book, deal with that. She made us very aware that she, I mean, she knew nothing about us. She didn't even know his name. I just left a message and she did call back and she said, I want to tell you that Whatever I'm going to tell you is not what I know, it's what I hear from the other side. Now, Henry was very skeptical about all this, but she was far out of Toronto and he said, I'm not going to let you drive and be on your own. You may be very upset. Well, what completely knocked him for a loop was that his father came in who had died 60 years ago. I'd never met him. It was just before we got married. Um, and wanted to take charge of the session with her. And he was walking with a, a, a young man whose head was always looking down. And she said to me, he is looking after your son. Look how he's taking his hand and walking in with him. Wow. And throughout the entire session, by the certainly from halfway onwards, he started speaking himself through her, of course. To each brother, thanking them for specific things. To us, apologizing for giving us so much pain. All kinds of things. And the whole family were there. My late parents, Henry's late parents, and, and Sasha, our little granddaughter, was there too. So the point is that that to me was incredibly comforting. It didn't stop the mourning process. It took one a lot of anxiety away from me. And she made one thing very clear. She said, when you leave here, you're not leaving Sean with me. You take Sean with you and you can talk to him whenever you want. And I used to, and I still often do. At night, I have his picture up on my, uh, uh, on my computer. Last thing I do before I switch off, good night, Sean, God bless, sleep well, rest. Uh, there is, there isn't a horror about his death. There is a much more a sense of wanting to continue the links. And we do it through the birthdays, through the whatever, you know, the, that kind of way. But I can do it personally with him. 
So that's made an enormous difference for me because that worry is gone. That's it's an amazing story. Thank you very much. We are with uh, Henry and Marcia Bloomberg uh, discussing Henry's memoir called Sean Left Quietly about their son, Sean, and him taking of his own life. We're going to be back with the Bloombergs right after this message. We are health care advocates to help navigate the issues associated with the aging process, to access benefits that are available for those individuals. Rothkopf Law Offices helped us with my mother's home. We didn't know that we had to put it in my mother's name in order to save the home. Everything that he said is true. I mean, I've had, we've had so many questions, and it didn't matter when I call, everybody is always there. In one word, it's been incredible. And the expectations going in, because we didn't know what we were going to be involved with, what we, the situation, how we were going to deal with any of these items, the expertise, the service, and implementation of the plan has been totally critical to the success that we've experienced. A group who understands how important the care is is paramount. I would highly recommend that anyone look at their website, review the information, look at their client experiences. We've been very satisfied with everything from start to finish. Welcome back to today's edition of Secrets of Meaning. We're with uh, Henry and Marcia Bloomberg uh, discussing Henry's uh, book, Sean Left Quietly, about their son's suicide, the aftermath about healing and wholeness and mourning and moving on and keeping the memory alive through a variety of different ways that we're, we're learning about uh, during this conversation, a fascinating conversation. Um, Henry, uh, you, you talk about this Portuguese word. I'm going to probably mispronounce this as well. Uh, saudade. Saudade. What, what, and, and you write about this in the context of, um, of a sense of a uh, search for healing. What, what does that word mean and why, why did you use it? Well, to me, it describes a, uh, a nostalgic yearning for a loved one. But that yearning is unfortunately clouded by the sense that the person will never return. So that um, nostalgic yearning um, reflected itself, reflected itself particularly in my book and on the cover, where uh, I speak of um, the canoe. Um, the canoe, the canoe. And talk to me, talk about that canoe and the image of the canoe. Right, and. What um, the image of the canoe? Well, the the photograph is a photograph taken from our cottage on a lake in an area known as Muskoka. Um, the canoe, of course, is superimposed on the photograph, but it refers to a paragraph in the book where I say, "In the recesses of my mind, I kept hoping that early one morning, standing on the deck of our Muskoka cottage." watching the dark sky turn pink over the lake. I would see our canoe gliding slowly out of the receding gray mist. And there would be Sean paddling back to us. Rational thinking cannot compete with such yearning. And that word, um, sodade, basically refers to that yearning that 
the person will return. But you really know that that will sadly not happen. But we all live through that. I mean, we all, I think, in, in dealing with that which was, have these quiet, very personal moments where we almost superimpose upon some place. A lot of times it is a place of, um, of quietude or spiritual comfort to us. And we sort of like, what if, or I remember, and, and I, I, these are moments of, they can be moments of healing. And I think that's the, in the context of what you're writing about it, it in the, in the particular part of the book, you, you also write, um, about the impact of family. I want to use this paragraph because I think and then I want to ask you about the family dynamics that surround this whole what conversation. You write, all families have their unique predicaments. It is not always the severity of the challenges they face, but the response to them that matters most. Each member of our family became aware that Sean needed help as he continued to vigorously wrestle his personal demons. The family systems uh, are fascinating conversations. They're just fascinating to study. Uh, Marcia, in, in literature, in plays, oh my God, family systems are the stuff, the stuff, the, the meat of the play, so to speak. How has, or if they have, the family dynamics of your own family changed over this decade or so since Sean's death? I would say that um, in some ways it has become closer. Um, there is an awareness uh, of Sean, there's an awareness of uh, Sasha, our granddaughter, who sadly died at about the age of two. And um, there is that memory of them. And somehow I, I have the sense we have three sons. Uh, blessed with eight grandchildren, I, I have a feeling of care. Uh, I mean, I find that the constant communication, I find the one son will call us maybe two, three times a day, how things, how things. Uh, other son does a lot of traveling, but he'll phone um, from, you know, he happens to be in Berlin this week, and he phoned from Berlin uh, or uh, oh, South America. Uh, and uh, just to communicate. Uh, and then I find there is, there is definitely, uh, I, I feel, a, an awareness uh, and a bonding uh, that has taken place. Uh, maybe maybe it would not have happened. Maybe it would have. I can't tell. But I, I definitely feel that there is a care, that they are aware. And in a way, I think also the writing of the book has created a, an awareness, greater awareness uh, among them all of uh, the reality of what happened. And for example, one grand, my one granddaughter uh, offered to, to do uh, a read of the book and, and give her comments, which, which really surprised Early me. Early on. Early on, and she came up with fantastic uh, points, uh, saying, well, you know, I don't understand that, or maybe you should explain this further, or whatever it was. And I, I, I was absolutely bowled over. Of course, we got another uh, professional editor afterwards, but her comments were fantastic. And then um, another son, uh, I asked him, you know, was he reading the book? And he said, no. And then uh, 
sometime later he said to me, by the way, Grandpa, I read the book and it was very meaningful to me. And I said, well, why? And he said, well, I wasn't feeling so good myself. And I was able to put myself into, uh, compare myself where I am uh, and, and my feeling of being down as opposed to what Sean was and it put it into perspective for me. And now I feel very, very much happier. And then even a, a 14-year-old son went on a camping trip and uh, grandson, he, grandson. Pardon? the grandson, the grandson of 14, grandson, be too old for children of right. 14. <laughs> My grandson went on this camping trip and he came back and he told me he'd also read the book. And I, again, I was very, very surprised. Um, and uh, he said, well, I didn't really know Sean. I was too young at the time, uh, but I, I remember vaguely. And uh, so I found that the book, the memorializing, getting together in one thing or another, in some ways, I think it just bonded the family uh, in ways which maybe I, I wouldn't, I hadn't, I wouldn't have expected. And the second book, which is now out an editor, has actually each grandchild mentioned with particular questions or whatever. So they're much more included too, because there isn't one focus of one. I mean, not one person focused like Sean was. Right. So before before we run out of time, I just want to ask you. Because you allude to this at various points uh, during the book, but I, I got to pull it out a little bit. What, what was the role of faith, your Judaism? I know you mentioned the rabbis. Um, how, how, how did that impact your ability to transition through this process? Well, for me, uh, it, it was important because it, was, um, it, it gave a feeling of comfort. The fact that uh, the, the, the service was in the temple, uh, the rabbi was incredibly uh, empathetic. And but he'd uh, known us for ever since right, we arrived. Right, but so was Rabbi Landsberg. She but wasn't part of the temple then. She was. When we arrived. So no, we talked about the service. Oh, no. Oh, the service. Yes, no, no the rabbi and, was and part. And the actual rabbi. service, um, there was Rabbi Landsberg and Rabbi Bielfeld, and the, the relationship with him was very, very meaningful. And the service itself was very, very meaningful because we, well, one of our grandchildren uh, spoke, and I think he was, what, 10, 11 years old at the time, and he spoke very, very well. And I sort of felt that Sean was there in many ways, and the, the, the hall and uh, was full, and uh, they opened up the doors to uh, join your room, and that became full. And... Uh, I, I could imagine Sean turning uh, around and saying to me, because he had this impish sense of humor, um, you know, wow, the place is full, but there must be another uh, event on the go as well. <laughs> so, so in a way, that was meaningful. And then the, also uh, shiver. the shiver was very meaningful. I mean, as you can very well imagine, but, you know, everyone coming together. And some of them opened up their own hearts to us. Um, and we found that um, their empathy was meaningful, especially when they had their own, uh, as it were, uh, grief and sometimes bereavement. So from, from a ritual point of view, from a religious point of view, I found that that was a, a source of great comfort. And then, we, and then well. we... Your tzat as well. Well, your tzat as well, always. and then the candles, and then... Then we added our own to that, celebrating his 
his first day, as it were, and uh, having every, as Marcy explained earlier, having everyone around um, and uh, going to um, the, the, the cemetery and oh, yes. such like. So all in all, it, it was part of uh, the comfort that we and the solace that we got. And one of the things, if I can add, I mean, I don't, it, it doesn't directly relate to what you're saying, was that the res- responses to the book have been amazing from people, a yoga, an, an, a yoga instructor of yoga teachers who said, this is a book, this is a he, the greatest healing tool I've found. Very short sentence. Uh, speak, people spoke about his style of writing and many people, and I think this is important because this makes it a little bit unusual, spoke about the fact that as a man, he opened himself up, showed his vulnerabilities when he was too scared to actually open a box with diaries because he didn't know what he was going to find in them. Many men would today don't want to speak like that or think like that. You know, we're tough. So I think that Henry has, I mean, for me and, and reading the book with him, he would give me chapters to look over. So I didn't write it, but we would discuss it. Uh, that was very important too. Henry and Marcia Bloomberg, the book, Sean Left Quietly. Um, I want to thank you very much for just sharing your journey and uh, your wisdom. And I know you've helped people just in this. So, so. My, my regards to your family. Say hello to Rabbi Landsberg for me. And thank you very, very much for, for sharing your journey. Um, it's a very, pleasure. very powerful. Thank you for inviting us. My pleasure, believe me. And to all of you, thank you very, very much for joining us on today's edition of Seekers of Meeting, the podcast TV arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. We very, very much appreciate your time. Again, if you'd like to contact us, just email me at rabbiaddress at jewishsacredaging.com. Uh, if you'd like to make a tax-free donation to help support our work, just go to the website, click on the donate button and follow the prompts. And again, thank you to our sponsors for these podcasts, uh, the Rothkopf Law Firm, providing a full range of assistance to individuals and families in the area of elder law. Reach them through rothkopflaw.com or 877-475-1101. Seekers of Meaning is produced to the facilities of Lubetkin Media Companies in beautiful Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And we thank our producer, Steve Lubetkin, for all of his expertise and guidance in the technical aspects of this program. To all of you, thank you again for joining us. I look forward to seeing you on our next Seekers of Meaning. In the meantime, please take care of yourself, be kind to one another, stay healthy.